0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of World Diplomacy. I'm here with uh, my colleagues, Christian and Armis. And of course, this would be
1: Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus'
0: favorite episode. <laughs> okay. Christian, <laughs> that is true. But can you please remind us, who's, who's Dr. Tedros? I think everyone knows, but just to remind our listeners, who's that guy?
1: That is the Secretary General of the World Health Organization.
0: And really relevant for this topic, as, as uh, the listeners might have, I read the title is the new global health order and we're going to address a lot of issues regarding the pandemic regarding global health and what's the situation lately but well before before we <coughs> dig into the topic uh how are you man how how are you aramis you're also here with us
2: um yeah i'm fine thanks i recently had COVID, but luckily that's over and i'm doing good thank you
0: all right uh, let me introduce this episode's guest my dear friend josephine Mosset how are you Josephine?
3: I'm great, thanks for having me.
0: No, it's her pleasure, it's her pleasure. Uh, Well, Josephine is not just one of my closest friends here in Brussels, she's also an incredible professional. She's a specialist in global health policy, she currently works as a program manager, she's in charge of health and digital work streams at the Africa Europe Foundation, where she currently focuses on initiatives regarding health workforces. Uh, She did her master's degree in public policy with a focus on global health in science Point in Paris and she has a lot of experience in various various health-based organizations such as Euroartist, Sanofi, Next Step Health. Uh, She's a dual national of France and Ireland and she speaks French English and she says that she speaks immediate Spanish but I think she speaks really well Spanish so it's it's a (laughs) pleasure. That's
3: what you say, that's what
0: you say. (laughs) It's a pleasure to have you here Josephine. And guys, I just thought that it was a really interesting idea to start talking about the pandemic and COVID. If we maybe share with our listeners, if we did get COVID, how did that happen? Uh, I don't know, Aramis, you told me that you just got it. So how did it it happen? Was it uh, strong for you? How was your experience? For so many months, I thought, okay, I'm immune to COVID
2: because I was exposed so many times to other people who had COVID and I didn't catch it. But yeah, then I got it. And um, yeah, it was okay. I mean, just the usual symptoms. But what I was really worried about is is long COVID because it, the Omnicon variant, you don't know um, yet what the the long term effects will be. And uh, like like a fatigue that that continues for months or years, it would be would be horrible, of course. Um, yeah. So far, it seems like uh, it's I'm
0: doing quite fine. <laughs> what about you, Chris? Did you get COVID in the past years?
1: Yeah, it was uh, very similar to what Aramis just said. It's not too long since I had it as well. It was uh, middle of January this year, and <clears throat> yeah, well, I, I had the, uh, the exact same experience being exposed uh, throughout the last years a lot of times and not catching it, thinking I was immune. I even uh, experienced having my, my girlfriend who I live with uh, back in Oslo, having she, she got COVID twice and and one of those times I, we were we were living together like normal, and I na- never caught it. Unfortunately, then I got it uh, coming back to Brussels uh, after Christmas break. Yeah, it was it was uh, quite harsh. I was also a bit worried about uh, the the long COVID, but uh, thus far it seems I'm just uh, as fatigued as I'm normally am. So <laughs> it hasn't changed much.
0: And what about you, Josephine? Did you get COVID? Can you please
3: <laughs> share your experience? I think, I think mine might be the more interesting uh, experience. I was just, uh, was it what, beginning of January? We were thinking, okay, we want to organize drinks, but we'll be reasonable and responsible. So we decided to uh, ask everyone to do a self-test uh, before joining the party. So I'm sat uh, around the table. I think Fabio is at that table actually. And we're, we're just sipping beers, you know, having a good time and doing our, our, our tests. And one stage, um, I, I see my housemate Arthur, just like looking towards like the table and then looking at me all of a sudden and like with wide eyes, you know, and I'm like, what's wrong? And he's like, Your test is positive. And I'm like, There's no way. I'm like fine. <laughs> and literally I look down and it's positive. So one of my housemates, Tom, rush, like rushes to his room and gets me to like do another test. Everyone gathers. And I'm immediately like positive, so I was just banned to my bedroom for a week. To your room, like honestly, to your I would bedroom. never have known. Like had we not like decided to be reasonable and actually test before a party. So I think yeah. I think it was quite of an interesting experience. We have a we have it recorded on camera. My reaction to like you know being banned. So, it was um...
0: hilarious. We had to text everyone in the party, <laughs> guys. Someone just tested positive. If you want to come, I mean up to you. Uh, long story short, and please listeners don't spread this information, we did end up having that party. Oh, it was really fun. <laughs> yeah,
3: I could hear it from my window.
0: Yeah, well, It's a bit sad. It was interesting. In my case, I don't know if I got COVID or not, guys, to be honest. I was in this house when everyone got it, and I yes, feel like maybe I did, I think but you did. no symptoms whatsoever, so uh, who knows? who knows? Maybe I did. Well, guys, now that we have shared a little bit of our experiences, why don't we dig into the topic? And I think that global health uh, governance is such an interesting topic now that the pandemic happened. It's the first, well, it's not the first pandemic, but it's, I don't know, like globalization and, and social media and the spread of information in these past years made it really felt really close to us. So I don't think that there's anyone in this planet that the pandemic didn't affect in one way or another. So maybe just, Josephine, why don't you explain us a little bit? What is global health?
3: So I think, you know, before even jumping into uh, global health, I think, you know, the thing about health uh, is that it's insanely political. And I think it's this one thing that, you know, everyone has health. Everyone's affected by health issues. Everyone knows someone that has a disease or like a health problem. So I think it's, the thing about health is it's so personal but it's so you know political at the same time that i think it's it's a it's incredible topic because you know you you cannot say oh i don't care about health because health is the beginning and the end of everything and without health you don't have a like a sound e- economy you don't have you know financial systems you don't because because health is what gov- gov- governs us you know so I think that's that's one thing that I'm like passionate about. It's like how, you know, essential health is. Global health for a very long time didn't not, uh for the longest time actually did not benefit from you know the interest, the level of interest that it, it should. Um, You know, we saw the the creation of institutions like the World Health Organization, uh, you know, in the mid 50s when there was all these like these institutions being, you know, set up with the UN, etc. And for the longest time, you know, they they really had this role of like supporting the global south. But there really wasn't uh, much of a focus at all on like, you know, uh, for example, North America, Europe, because they had their own systems, like especially Europe with uh, welfare systems and universal health coverage. Um, But I think, you know, there's been a a bigger focus on global health. It started with the HIV pandemic. That was, you know, I think that was such an important turning point in history where uh, all of a sudden you had to have some kind of international approach to health because this was something that was affecting everyone across the world. Um, And I think, you know, since then there was a bunch of outbreaks, but I think COVID, as you say, has really put health on the top of political agendas for the last two years. Health used to be really something that was in the remit of ministers, ministers for health, and let's say that uh, within governments, it was very much considered as a very expensive uh, ministry, very uh, something that you know we would want to cut on. And I think you know now with the pandemic and how much it's affected everyone, heads of state has gone up to heads of state levels saying you know health is crucial. And I think that finally we're starting to see proper investments. And I think a part of it is uh, the real the recognition that health should not just be in the remit of a national government, it should be more of a wider level. And I know we're gonna talk about it more um during this podcast, but there there's kind of a discrepancy between how you know, the the speeches of saying we need to like have global cooperation and how things were dealt with in practice and how, you know, we global is yet something that's very much spoken of, but uh, in terms of like proper action, there's there's a lot to be done. But this concept is really, it's um, the idea that health is not just uh, something that it doesn't respect human borders. Let's put it that way, you know, it doesn't respect diplomatic borders. So dealing with health as a, you know, country is very limited obviously because i mean a pandemic is just going to cross the border in a day and what are you going to do if you're just acting yourself like as an individual country you're only going to go so far so i think that that's really and, and pandemics obviously put this in perspective
0: and even if you close the border, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic when it, it came to Europe in Italy and they closed the border and it was like, it's not going to make a difference. No. Maybe can it can slow down a little bit, but it's going to go global. It's going to spread everywhere because now people move around there's trade. Even even North Korea <laughs> had a lot of COVID cases, which we don't really know because they have no data, but they did get it as well. So, But it's interesting. It's an interesting disease because Aramis and I were talking about Ebola in, in the early in some years ago and how it did not become that uh it didn't spread as much as covid maybe because of the like essence of the disease i don't know Armis, if you want to talk about this a little bit
2: yeah um so i read um in in my research for the episode a little about um ebola and um what was so special about this this illness or what i found to be interesting was that the mortality rate of ebola is is much higher um, than compared to covid when you catch ebola I mean, correct me, josephine, if if I'm wrong, but apparently it, the the mortality rate is ninety percent. So if you catch it, you're nearly dead. And also the way you die is is very painful,
3: no, absolutely. However, one thing about Ebola is' that it's not see basically the difference between Ebola and Covid, for instance, is how it spreads. I mean Ebola. It's bodily fluids, so, you know. So it's very much linked to like local practices for funerals, for example, where you know, in, in a lot of like countries, like in Africa, in West Africa, for instance, when when you the deceased, you clean the deceased, you know, you you you, you exchange fluids, and that's how it spread. Obviously, this is not a very ideal way for a pandemic to explode worldwide. So, um, and the difference, for instance, with COVID is that it's in microparticles. So it's like yeah. it airborne, you know, it's uh, you're in a room with someone and it's just going to it's going to travel from you to that person, even though you're like have no physical contact. And I think that's obviously like obviously every disease is spread in a different way. But. I think that's the thing about COVID. It was just so contagious. And you the know? fact
0: that you can be completely asymptomatic and yes, still spread it, I think that's what made it this uh, of course. super, super spreader. Because you could have it like me. Maybe I did have it, and I just had no idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, unless you do a test, you would be a, a potential spreader, and you didn't even know. So, yeah, I think that that made this, this specific uh, disease so easy to spread everywhere. Yeah. But, I mean, we're lucky that the mortality rate is so small, right? Like... Imagine that it would be a little bit higher. How many people would be dead? I, I
3: mean, know. you know, you say small, but I think we need to like we one thing about pandemics and I think about you know, even just crisis, because like the the like as population, we have to learn to deal with it. We have to normalize it for in a way. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think you're just even what you just said is so interesting because you say, Thank God we didn't have so many people dying. There's a million people that died in the US. A million like just that's yeah. the population of Brussels that is insane i mean that's talk about a mortality rate you know it's yeah. it's wild and you're and but somehow because it's you know older people because it's been spread out over two years because we've had to deal with this for such a long time where we're we're coming to a stage where we're like you know what it's fine like it's not so dangerous i want i want my life to take to go to go mm-hmm. back to normal and I think it's because we have what we call COVID fatigue, right, yeah. obviously, because it, we, we've we all been so affected in our lives by this crisis. And yet again, you know, making a point against you, what I was saying at the beginning of the call about health affecting us so, you know, intimately, you talk about wars going on in other parts of the world, and they will affect you, but up to a certain extent, right? A pandemic is like entirely shifting your life you know and i mean it's it's got such intimate consequences in how your life is going to pan out and i think that's yet again like you know that how it's so political but it's so personal at the same time you know
0: and chris how do you feel about that because i think that now we're starting to feel that like post pandemic at least here in western europe uh, with the with the war in Ukraine, uh, the pandemic went to the back of the agenda no one really cares anymore. And regarding mask mandates, they're falling everywhere in West Europe. So I kind of feel like uh, at least we have this feeling that the pandemic is over here. Uh, my family in Mexico tell me kind of similar things, but it's not the case in other places around the world.
1: I think it's it's important to acknowledge that, that there are very, very vast amounts of people who are still living... Under restrictions and and also in a fear of the the effects of this pandemic, still I I can remember the the last couple of weeks have seen cities of millions in China in full on lockdown because of Omicron, and just this week I think they there has been a report of one point five million cases. In Germany, still, which has lifted most of its restrictions uh, similarly to here in here in Belgium and, and most of uh, most of Europe saying that we're we're already in the post pandemic is kind of not necessarily the reality, but of course it's the the dream for a lot of us. But I I think also Josephine will get into this, but the reality of a lot of people that have been neglected in the distribution of vaccines will if if that that doesn't. Uh, speed up soon. Uh, it's we, we we are going to live with this for a long time. Even though we we lift restrictions here in Europe, we vaccinate all of our people. It's not going to work if not the whole world has access to the same health facilities as as we we do here.
2: Josephine, are there any or uh, w- what are the latest predictions within the the science community on how long the, we will have to deal with this pandemic? How long will it dominate our lives in? not just in the West, but globally?
3: I mean, honestly, you you know, you can only go so far with foresight, especially like, you know, some like a pandemic like this. But I think, you know, to build on on your points, um, you know, and and, and this would might be, we might go into this later, but, you know, there's a massive issue of equity. I mean, as you say, we in Western Europe and, you know, in the global North, let's say, we're we're walking away from this. We're and you know, first of all, that is I mean, you know, like public health specialists and epidemiologists are actually raising their alarms right now. They're saying we're going too fast in like putting those restrictions down. I mean, the numbers are there, they're going higher and higher. People are getting sick, and you know, they're getting sick over and over again because these variants keep coming and I think you know. Th- first of all, the pandemic is absolutely not over anywhere. But then, as as you know, you were mentioning. I think it was Chris China. I mean, they that is zero COVID policy, and right now they're just in the midst of yet another outbreak. But going back to um, the global south, you know, I think that they are very much in the middle of this crisis, if not p- potentially in the beginning. And you know, because. The weapons we have to deal with this pandemic have been the vaccines, right? Mm. And we, there was this call for global solidarity back in 2020 that was led, I mean, actually by the French Emmanuel Macron, but also just more globally, uh, where we set up this facility called the COVAX facility, right? And th- the idea was great. It was, you know, let's share all of our supplies. Let's be, Let's do this commonly. But then all of a sudden, as soon as you know the, the pharma industry was like creating those vaccines, countries are throwing themselves and buying up stock, you know. And all of a sudden, th- there was no there was there was so few doses um, that were available for for everyone. So first of all, there was this inequity, and you know this has widespread consequences because if you only have half the population that's like you know vaccinated and half is not, I don't you know half. I'm being very kind here you're actually built like you're creating a massive issue because you're going to be creating the ground for uh, variants you know and the thing about vaccines is that they're only they can only go so far with variants mm-hmm. so basically the lack of cooperation the lack of global like global collaboration is having like deadly consequences within countries however and this is the issue with politics i mean A politician, what's their, you know, their first responsibility, it's towards the population that elected them. What does the population that elected them want? They want vaccine coverage, yeah. right? So you're a politician in Germany. You're a politician in Spain. What are you doing? You are, you know, making sure that you have those vaccine doses for your people. Yeah. But that's not taking into account that, you know, some of the non-priority populations in Spain are getting this vaccine. The high priority people in like, let's say, Sierra Leone or Malawi are not. Mm-hmm. And and this is fomenting the issue is that how do you reconcile Global and national, and I think you know. I remember um, I organized this debate a month ago, and we were talking with the Commissioner for International Partnerships, Uta Uupilainen, and, and we were challenging her on this. We're saying, you know, like you're hauling, Europe is hauling those vaccines, and she said, yes, but you gotta you gotta understand as well that we have a responsibility to our people, and and I think that that was such an interesting point was saying, you know, to what extent, how how do you reconcile you know, making sure that your people are covered and you're taken care of with a global responsibility for for action. I think that just, yeah. you know, this the, going back, because obviously we can go everywhere with this debate but or this discussion, but I think it's it's just showing how political this is. No, it this is. This is, it you is. Know?
0: And what you said makes a lot of sense, like uh, to actually end the pandemic, you need to vaccinate as many people as possible yeah. around the world. But with vaccine nationalization, it really complication issue. I remember at the beginning of the vaccine distribution that uh, the global north had like uh I, I don't remember like maybe sixty-seventy percent of vaccinated people, and in the rest of the world it was nothing, it was like maybe ten percent. And and that's, that's why Omicron that's current started, numbers, Fabio. It's still current numbers, I'm, Africa
3: fifteen percent sure coverage, fifteen Damn. Europe, seventy-two. Damn. I mean, you know, the numbers speak for themselves.
0: They do. So do you guys think that COVAX and all these initiatives to promote vaccination in the Global South have not lived to the expectations? Well, I think there were never major expectations that that it would be really successful
2: in in the short term. It was always um, concretely put that Africa will have a, a lack of vaccines and that they will have a problem. Just concerning what Josephine said. Um, I think one way to argue, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, the the lack of distribution by the Europeans could be saying that at the moment, uh, at at least it appears to me that um, Europe is the place where COVID is is spreading the most in the world, like if if we look at the past two years. And um, if you take that into account, it's also the place where we have the most, where it's the most likely that um, new variants will appear so i think in that sense you could argue okay um, this is a highly dangerous region so with vaccines it can be avoided that new uh, variants are created and therefore um, there needs to be special attention put to europe especially if you consider that and maybe that uh, might be because of lack of media coverage as well but it seems to me that the global south has not been hit as severe as the global north.
3: Actually, you know, Aramis, I think that's a really interesting point you're making. That's why we think, why? Because we don't we have the data. Honestly, and this is another essential point. See, what the global south is is also dealing with is there's who's who's capturing the data? who actually knows the numbers, you know, because like, it's as simple as when you don't have sound data, how are you supposed to build policy, you know, and it goes down to, for example, going back to like, you know, DRC, or let's say potentially Niger, like they don't have people underground collecting this data. So we think we have this false sense it's not spreading but very much is i think you know europe where, where is europe leading europe is leading in data collection it's actually you know you look at denmark denmark's mm-hmm. like a global leader in this and they're actually setting up you know best practices and this is where you will get this false sense that there's like especially a spread in europe mm-hmm. i think the spread does not respect any region i think obviously where there's a lot of like interconnection of humans obviously there's going to be more spreads but i think that there's really we're all affected the same way. But there very much is this sense because of the data that we see on our tables. And I think, you know, I, I I don't want to like change the topic, but I would just say very quickly, you know, going forward, like obviously one lesson we have is that we need to build data collection systems to guide policy making, to guide decision making in health, because that's that's where you can find yourself in very dangerous situations where you have this false sense. That you don't have a crisis just because you don't actually have the data from the ground
0: and sometimes you can't even trust the numbers i feel like uh mm. with the amount of cases that were never reported or some governments talking about latin america that they they cleaned up the numbers a little bit so it things don't seem that bad and they can continue uh, opening the economy and i think that's a really interesting topic that maybe i don't know chris if you, if you have something to add like that that dilemma uh, regarding opening economies or closing them because of the of the level of spread you know it's always been a a dilemma uh, regarding policymaking. So, how do you see that, Chris? I think that first um,
1: regarding, I, I want to touch on, upon this this topic of, of data collection and and also the advancements in, in in health technologies, which creates this other dilemma, such as what we saw with the Omicron variant when when South African scientists discovered the variant. And and this turned into a full-on ban on South African flights. Uh, the almost the, the whole continent of Africa was punished for having discovered and and done all of this amazing research to to actually prepare us all for for a new variant. And and there we have we we, we can touch upon a, a lot of uh, other topics regarding. You know, uh, unequal distribution of of uh, a lot of uh, health technology facility, uh, all of this, and but also what 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 comes as a consequence for for the countries, and then then how this impacts these economies. South Africa was was almost on the path towards being able to open up, having more tourism, which they are very heavily reliant on. A lot of a lot of countries around the world are very reliant on on tourism, and we saw this both both in african the African continent also asia, which which uh, during the time that omicron was discovered in in last last fall, late last fall, which was going to be their season for for tourism from from most of the global north and the west, and then having to shut down again and having this being a punishment. For for having done the right thing, reporting, discovering, and and making us all prepared, and and I think that's maybe, Josephine, you can touch on more upon that and how you how you see this in 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 the more general discussion about you know inequity in in health policy and global health in general.
3: Yeah, Chris, thank you so much for giving this example. I think it's an absolutely it's it's such a crucial you know case you know, casing points point about how basically South Africa was doing the right thing. You know, South Africa was actually playing into the whole global solidarity agenda. And they were punished. They were literally punished for being transparent. And there, there's so much I think, you know, this touches upon. Also, there's so much resentment because what how do we react in Europe and North America? we close our borders to these people who are actually, you know, trying to help us and actually being open about the fact that there's a new variant. I think it's, it was, it was so revealing as to like, we talk about global solidarity. We have all these big speeches. You have these big summits. We, we say we're going to put so much money, but in practice, when we go down to the actual reality on the ground, this is how we react. I mean, like, you know, we're, we've been talking about, global health for decades at this stage and and we're still here you know at the end of the day we're still here and we we started this pandemic saying we're going to share vaccines we're going to help one another and the reality is we close our borders to Africans we do not distribute evenly the vaccines we do not support in like you know um, horizontal investments towards health system strengthening we like reallocate money from one pro one crisis to another as soon as there's something else that goes high up on the agenda. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's you know it's um there's definitely I think we are not there when it comes to solidarity. Unfortunately, I think. However, and I don't want to be so pessimistic. I think there's also a lot of good that came out of it. And for instance, you know, going back to the whole Covax facility, was it a success? No. Was it a failure? It wasn't either. But better Actually, than no. nothing you know you know what because this was arguably the largest logistical operation that was ever set up by humanity think about it i mean we're talking about a global vaccination campaign we're talking about vaccinating Billions of people,
0: and the We're... vaccine got uh, produced in a year. That's exactly—it's
3: insane, you know. what I think that we we also need to rec- like recognize that it's it's not all bleak, actually. You know, we have been reaching people, we've been getting doses to yeah. you know people, and I think that we it's I think it's it's just a really good lesson as to how far we've come and how far we still have to go. And you Josephine,
0: know? you that you work in this sector, you talk to these professionals that are in the field. What can be better? How can this distribution be implemented or, or improved?
3: Yeah, actually, a really good point. I was actually uh, talking to um, the director of health programs at UNICEF actually a month ago, and he was saying basically, um, so we got those vaccines, you know, we, we secured them. But how do we get a vaccine from, you know, being in a manufacturing site in Belgium into the arms of someone that lives, for instance, in Botswana, you know, I mean, or let's say, uh, I don't know, Syria or another country. And, and this, is the, this is very much part of this logistical operation, you know, how to which extent global cooperation goes, because this is a highly complex product, you know, we have to have co- cold chain, we have to have storage, we have to have trained professionals, we have to reach the last mile. And I think that's where we currently stand with this vaccination campaign. The positive is we have enough doses. Africa officially has enough doses.
0: They just can't get them. To but the, now the it's
3: how do you reach your people, mm. you know, and it's about infrastructure, electricity, because these are vaccines that you need to keep in fridges. But if you don't have electricity, you don't have a fridge. Mm. It's sure. as simple as that, you know, and it's revealing of how much further we need to go. But I think it's, you know, we, I still want to underline the positive. Mm. We, we got those doses. We got them late, yeah. way too late, obviously. But we're working towards something, you know, and this is where I really want to, I really want to, underline this you know we we've we've made so much progress too you know
2: so josephine there was a lot of um criticism towards the vho at the beginning of the pandemic because um there was this allegation that they were suppressing information and that um china actually did a lot of mistakes at the beginning and um is responsible that covid actually spread so quickly in the entire world and um, yeah but since then the the criticism has toned down in in the in the really the broad media landscape. I mean, of course, you still hear criticism, but it's not so um, loud anymore. How would you describe um, or how would you review the the job of the VHO so far during the pandemic? Has it lived up to its to its expectations?
3: Yeah, thanks thanks for for, Aramis for this question. I think it's a really important one. Um, I think, you know, first of all, what is WHO? WHO is, you know, an, an agency of the United Nations. And I think, you know, the issues that the United Nations are faced with are also faced with by WHO, right? Um, WHO is, does not, is not independent of governments. And, you know, that 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 is such a pain point, obviously, especially when, you know, you politicize health. And I think, as you're saying about Chinese, China, sorry, Basically, China was stopping WHO from making those inquisitions. China was blocking. So, how you know this this is revealing of like, okay, I mean, WHO basically has its hands tight, you know, like it's it's it can only go so far because it cannot go against its members. And its donors. members mm-hmm. are well, yes, donors also, but it, it just cannot. And I think that's 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 a real pain point. And I think it's it's revealing of like the, the limitations. And you know, actually it's been interesting because. Right now, Indonesia has the um, presidency of um, the G20. And I actually um, stumbled upon an article from them (laughs) calling for the end of WHO. And you know what? I I thought that was revealing. I was like, okay, wow. I mean, WHO has been challenged for a long time. I mean, Ebola was a, it was such a mess. I mean, they just messed up so bad. They did not play up to their role at all. And actually, I think, you know, 2014, 2015 were especially hard years for WHO. No one believed in them. No one, yeah. you know. I think also one point the financing of WHO is so it's nothing. It's a billion a year. Just to put us mm-hmm. in perspective, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, a foundation private, huh? 2 billion a year. So basically, a private foundation has twice the budget of the international organization responsible for health. I mean, look at yeah. that. You know, yeah. it's like, and obviously the problem with having private money going into health is that they, they, they did you whatever the hell they want if they want to say we're going to kill reproductive rights because we don't believe we we can you know and i think actually that, that brings me back to who who is not independent from its members what does this mean it means that for example the u.s had an agenda where they were not going into reproductive rights for a very long time because of the whole abortion uh debate etc mm-hmm. so those programs were killed You know, and I think this this is the issue. We politicize health so much that we obviously WHO can only go so far and then obviously it doesn't act the way it should or it's considered that it should. So I think has the WHO lived up to its expectations? No. Has it failed completely? I wouldn't say either. I just think we need to recognize what the WHO is and what it can do mm-hmm. given it's the like, resources. you know, resources, mm-hmm. but also the the way it's built, you know, it's, it's, it has 193 members. And if the members don't want to go into something, what, what is it going to do? It's it's born from governments. Yeah. It's not independent, you know. No, yeah, I agree.
0: I mean, it's the whole. It's the same uh, discussion we have regarding the UN, right? Like, uh, exactly. How can you how can you align one hundred ninety nine agendas? And when you have countries that don't think the same, and then even if you do, uh, every declaration from the General Assembly, it's not legally binding. So you know, at the end, the states can do whatever they want. And I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that the WHO is part of the. No 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 it's an independent subsidiary organ from the UN right
3: Yeah yeah like yeah among among
0: the UN uh, organs where does it stand i'm not quite sure
3: Yeah it's it's basically it's 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 like one of the organs of the, the UN you know just like like i don't know for like UNECA in africa you know or okay. like other organizations that depend and but you know i, I think it just we, it's going back to it is not independent it will never be it never has And when you're dealing with something that's insanely political, like a pandemic, because a pandemic is so, so political, then obviously you're going to be faced with massive issues such as retention of information. And obviously there's a lot of talk now. And, you know, I'm actually part of this um, WHO, uh, they're they're creating a global health preparedness network. And Mm -hmm. um, I've been invited to participate uh, for the Africa Europe Foundation. And and they're they're we've had workshops, you know, and they're and they're they're brainstorming. Okay, how do we share information? How do we share best practices? How do we do it? So the technicians at WHO they're working so hard. They're trying. They're building networks. They're doing their best. But I think at the end of the day, if at head of state level there's a, you know a will to kill some piece of information to kill the spreading then you can only go so far.
0: And that's that's when the whole uh, origin of the pandemic uh, dilemma also appears. Of course. How the pandemic started, maybe we'll never know.
2: Yeah, so at the beginning of the pandemic, there there was this discussion, okay, how did the virus originate? And for a long time, the, the a narrative dominated that it was quite clear that it somehow developed um, not by human hand, but somehow with by human nature contact. But uh, And there was always this conspiracy theory that, uh, or something deemed as conspiracy theory that the virus was created in a lab. And in fact, on social media, you were actually banned for a long time if you claimed that the virus was created in a lab because um, it was deemed as a conspiracy theory. Joe Biden, after he took over presidency, took up this topic and actually... Um, Started an 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 investigation where the the U.S. administration researched how the virus originated and whether the lab theory, so the theory that the virus was created in a lab, is true. Um. So, Josephine, what do you think? Is it possible that it was created in a lab? Is it even likely?
3: So, actually, I missed. Thanks for this question. Um. To, to quickly answer your your question here, actually, latest uh, evidence points to a wet markets. So there's been investigations, like latest evidence has been going there, but I I kind of want to touch upon the broader topic here, you know, not just COVID-19, but how basically, you know, like also... This is very much part of the polit- politicization of health. You know, you're, you're creating all these theories. You're, you're like fomenting uh, unrest, you know, ar- around this, this topic. You're creating like, you know, you're, you're building dissension between people, like, you know, within families, within co- between countries, like at every level. I think that, you know, this is very much part of a wider topic of how something that, you know, should be hard facts are politicized to manipulate reality and perceptions you know and and more and more like you know vaccines the evidence is sound every actual proper study shows that vaccines like vaccination is a positive for health and does not create autism for example However, there are millions upon millions of people across the world that are so definitively sure that basically maybe Bill Gates is like impl- like implanting a microchip 5G. to control your mind. And, you yeah. know, I think this is the broader topic of like we're manipulating people. And I think, you know, the origins of the COVID crisis are very much in this. It's, you know, it's, it's conspiracy all over. And I think, you know, this is part of the topic around You know, health, going back into, it is intimate, but it's also political. It goes across every level of society, you know?
0: No, and, and regarding what you just said, uh, Josephine, I want to ask you, Chris, because we've talked this about it in, in university. And do you feel like people should be obliged to to get vaccinated, like some of your parent countries are saying? Should it still be your personal choice? That is the most complicated question I think I will be asked. <laughs> I always hit you with the hardest ones. Huh?
1: <laughs> yeah, um, I... Now, I don't have to study for any of my essays. I can just ponder this one for <laughs> the next kind of months. Um really, um, i don't I don't think it's uh, it's something that I have any definite answer to. I, I think it's having as many people vaccinated as possible and and having it be as far as it's possible, uh, voluntary. Uh, choice is is of course is of course the the optimal solution here, but we we see the necessity of the vaccines and we see the consequences of not having vaccinated populations. In the discussion of having it mandatory, uh, I. I don't think I will make any judgment calls on that. But I, personally, I, I, I have a strong inclination as to as to feeling that people who choose not to vaccinate, while not having any underlying disease, having any very specific reason to not vaccinate, not doing it is a disservice to your fellow. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, fellow war diplomacy listeners, please get <laughs> vaccinated. Go get your vaccine, please. Yes, do so. it is it is very, Just, do, is you, it you, very... do you do you want to jump in that topic or is it too I mean, political no
3: i look i am transparent i've always been clear i work in health not that i'm a scientist by background but i work in public health i think that belonging to a society goes with rights and obligations mm-hmm. and if you want to participate in your society if you want to enjoy the benefits of your society socializing you know enjoying Joining crowds, I'm sorry, but I want no, actually I'm not sorry. I think that yes, you want to enjoy the benefits of society. Then you got to be vaccinated. You don't want to be vaccinated. Then you choice, don't but... enjoy. And I think yeah. you know what? I 100% agree in with in the French approach.
0: The French, the QR. The
3: Basically, it was all about saying you don't want to get vaccinated. We're not going to force you, but you're not going to go to the cinema. You're not going to go to the bar. You're not going to go to a mm. concert. You can, yeah. you know, take care of your kitchen garden in your garden. And the sure. next
0: day, a million people. That, that is care. the optimal solution.
3: Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's really how I see it. It, it. Belonging to society comes with rights and obligations. Yes. And this is very much part of it. And I understand it is a very intimate topic because it is you injecting a foreign mm-hmm. substance into your body. And I mean, I understand this is not nothing. However, you know, I think also one thing is that we're so used to like being vaccinated as children for all these diseases. We forgot. We've forgotten what it means. Like polio, for instance. Mm-hmm. Does anyone, anyone among us know the consequences of polio? No. no. this was millions of children that had their lives. They either died or were handicapped for life. Then what we do? We like we create this vaccine, and all of a sudden we forget about polio. No. And so it's so far away from our like collective Im- imagination the benefits of vaccinations that all of a sudden, all these conspiracy theories can be born, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that's part of it. We forget the benefits of vaccines. We need to remind ourselves that- There's one want...
0: point that people that don't want to get vaccinated say that kind of uh, like hits my mind. And I think they have a point. It's that we still don't know like the long-term, like the few few, few long-term consequences of this vaccine, right? Because some medicines, they take years and years to develop. And those studies, you know, like the 10 year, uh, is it going to be okay or not for you? So I think that's a good point that they have, to be honest. I kind of agree. Like, we will never know. How do you, guys yeah, but that? if you have
3: cancer, are you going to be uh-huh. like, oh, I don't know the long-term consequences of this new chemotherapy? Yeah. I mean, yeah. like, mm-hmm. I think you can have the same argument for every disease, but I, are also, you still not going to do it?
1: And it's also, I, I feel uh, in a sense that uh, <laughs> we're all doing it. So at least if, if we're if we're all doomed, then we're doomed together, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, the world is going to end with a global climate uh, crisis anyway, right? So it's like, (laughs) how many years do we have left anyway? No, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. That's a really pessimistic (laughs) point of view. Yeah, so, back to the topic of the whole lab
1: theory, I think that it's also important to keep in mind that (laughs) I I haven't read the report, Uh, I'm I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna claim to have done so. I do feel that uh, I trust health policy professionals like Josephine who tell me that this uh, most likely have originated originated in in uh, markets uh, is is more of a sound theory, and also that we have to keep in mind who are conducting these reports. Uh, the U.S. has very big interests in <laughs> having uh, a reason to to discredit China as a whole uh, on the global arena. So t- I, I take. Claims by the U.S. that China forged this virus in the lab with a, a whole handful of salt, <laughs> to say the least. Um, yeah. But I, I, of course, I, it's it's something that we I don't know potentially will ever know for sure. But but I I will trust the professionals on this one. And Josephine, you've made a sound argument for that. I'm I'm wondering. Also, as a, as a professional, Josephine, what what are your thoughts on what comes after, after COVID? What, what, what are we going to see in the aftermath of this?
3: You know, I think that one of the positive outcomes from this pandemic has been that, I think, you know, global health has been kicked up to like on top of political agendas. And I was, I was mentioning that earlier, but head of state level, and I think, you know, finally, Because that wasn't, you know, like obviously the HIV crisis up to a certain extent. And however, yes and no, there was a lot of like, you know, you looked at the U.S. approach to it. It was it was pretty awful. But um, I think that, you know, there's been unprecedented investments in health. Um, And we're finally looking at not just, uh, you know, combating, for example, tuberculosis or malaria, but actually proper strengthening healthcare systems, like proper investing in universal health coverage. And I think that's a positive, you know, like, for example, um, the European Commission has just announced uh, 500 million uh, uh, collaboration, like um, investment towards uh, manufacturing for health products in Africa as part of its global gateway package. The European Investment Bank has just uh, invested 500 million in collaboration with WHO to strengthen healthcare systems. And the Biden government has just, you know, put so much, a lot of money on the table as well towards universal health coverage and health system strengthening. And I think that's a part of the positive and it's gone high up on agendas and there's action being taken and there's money being allocated. Finally, you know, finally. Now the challenge is, and this is the reality of like, I think every political topic, right? How do you sustain it? How do you keep the momentum? And we're already seeing it in Europe. You know, um, you're like, we're all focused on Ukraine right now and it's okay. I mean, money has been put on the table for health. It's great. It's it's there, it's been invested, but you know, it's not just about a one-off investment. We we need long-term, you know, full focus and attention. And I think that's the, the challenge for all of, uh, everyone in health is how do we create, like, how do we keep this momentum? How do we not, you know, have people just forget about it because it's not affecting their lives anymore? Um, so so that's the next step. So I think a positive is money's on the table, investments are there, but it's like, for how long? And, you know, how do we sustain this?
0: Aramis, do you have anything to add to this point? How do you see yeah. it? Um, yeah, yeah. I think in
2: general, it's it's tough to answer what comes after COVID because um, we don't know um, when COVID will be over. But um, I think that that there is a potential that the pandemic will have much worse consequences for the entire world because of the lack of support for, for the global south. And while this would be horrible, of course, um, these catastrophic consequences could build the ground for... Radical change in global health policy, and maybe this could then in turn be be the ground for for a sustainable way of how we can at least maximize our control on on the future spread of of um, more diseases
0: yeah I agree I think that there will be uh, you know like we always study history and contemporary politics uh, like there's major events and I just like, I, I I freaking know that COVID will be a before and after event. You know, like we talk about 9-11, like a post, after we talk, we will talk about the Ukrainian war as a post after. But the pandemic, the pandemic has had consequences all over the world that I don't think that, um, like the Second World War was one of those major worldwide events. The next one is the pandemic. I think like that, that has touched every single point and corner in the world. I don't even think that the 2008 financial crisis impacted every single person in the world as covid has done as the second world war maybe not even the second world war touched every single person but this disease it did and there's always going to be a before and afterwards the good times and the bad times
3: (laughs) no absolutely you know i think it's it's i think we're as you guys are saying we're still there we're still in the pandemic But we're still, you know, I think we we don't have to wait for every case to be over before we start, you know, drawing conclusions and reckoning. And, you know, I think on on the global, like political level, that's that's happening. For example, the European Parliament just set up a COVID, uh, COVID study group, you know, between MEPs to understand, okay, what have we what are the lessons learned? where do we go from here what could we have done better what will we do better and you know there's so much money going into pandemic preparedness now i mean billions and and there's a tension here because this money obviously that was allocated to other diseases is being poured put towards pandemic preparedness for example you know there was like hiv programs etc i mean money doesn't grow on trees so you have to reallocate but I think that definitely that this this is a real moment of reckoning and i I maybe one last point for me is saying you know this is the perfect example of the necessity for global cooperation because if you don't have cooperation then everyone suffers and i think that you know rich and poor alike and and we this is not ingrained enough but it's a lot more ingrained than it used to be and that's good Mm -hmm. you know it's just like climate change everyone's gonna suffer everyone is suffering you know and, and these are things that you you can't move around you can have billions and hide in your mansion but you're still going to be affected yeah. you know the same way as yeah. everyone else
0: uh guys it's tradition here in war diplomacy we always recommend at the end of the episode um it could be anything a series movie uh whatever uh so let's start with you Aramis. anything in mind
2: yes um so today we talked a lot about how politics is often irrational and um like there is in theory a a solution that that could be put through but in the end politics sometimes is is not highly efficient and a serious where you can really um like get an understanding of of how that political reality is and get an understanding of why politics is sometimes so irrational and, and such a bargaining thing um the serious organ is actually if i in my opinion a good example of of how this looks like. And actually, there will be a new season published um, pretty soon. So, yeah, I think that's just um, a good w- a, in general, a great series and a great way to, to kind of get an understanding
0: for that. Okay, what about you, Chris? Have anything interesting this week?
1: Yeah, so this ties in a lot with what we've been touching on today, really. Um, and and also the closing remarks of of Josephine on what comes ahead um book called global health security a blueprint for for the future by Lawrence Gustin who he's an expert on pandemic preparedness and and uh, writes on on a, a blueprint for the future of of new uh, global health security and how we have to strengthen global cooperation and also uh, maximize the the distribution of health systems worldwide to to create a more prepared system for pandemics, which are of course going to happen again. So, it we we have a lot of lessons that we hopefully have learned from COVID and that we have to take on further to uh, to the
0: future. Josephine, your guest, uh, special guest from this episode, do you have anything in mind?
3: You know what, I think it's it's not about this this week. I think maybe one thing I would I would call for is, you know, health is cool, guys. Health is such an interesting topic. And I'm I'm gonna say call for like whoever is struggling and thinking of like, okay, what do I wanna do professionally? Consider global health. You know, because it goes from, you know, dealing with biomedical warfare until sexual reproductive rights and talking about equity. I mean, health is everything. Health is everywhere because we are basically our health, you know, and and I think it's it's yeah. that's my call, you know, because um, I remember studying global health at university and, and we were so few, you know, because mm-hmm. so few of us saw the interest. And I think this pandemic has been good for this, but I'm gonna continue calling for it. It's like, consider global health as a career path because you will not be disappointed, you know?
0: Wow, not gonna lie, I think that's one of the best recommendations we've (laughs) had. (laughs) I love that, Justine, I love that. (laughs) Yeah, how lovely. Uh, mine is going to sound really cliche. I cannot top the bar after what Josephine just said. I was going to recommend this movie called Contagion.
3: It's <laughs> you know? great. I recommend it as well.
0: It's an interesting film, you know. Very and good movie. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic uh, mm-hmm. watching this this movie and be like, oh my God, it's the end of the world. We're, we're done. I mean, it was not the end of the world. It was a fun movie to watch. And the second recommendation I've had I have it's uh, this really interesting conference that's going to be hosted here in, in Brussels by the Brussels School of International uh, Studies. Uh, it's it's going to be quite interesting. Uh, you can for all the listeners you can register and, and listen it and follow it from your computer, whatever you are. Uh, Christine and I were organizing it and it's uh, it's quite interesting because our, our, our guest here Josephine, she will be the moderator of one of the panels. So for any one of you interested in climate change, in the future of global alliances, or in development, we're going to have this really interesting conference, the 7th of April. So we're going to leave the the link and and all the information in a highlight in the stories in Instagram. So if you're interested, there you go. Uh, Guys, it's been such a wonderful episode. I'm really, really happy. I think it's one of the best we've done so far. And it's a topic that has affected everyone. So I expect a lot of people to listen to it. I don't know, guys. It was great. Thank advice. you so much, Josephine. Fully agree.
3: Thank you, guys. My pleasure. I can I could talk for days. You know, I I think this is, this is my passion. But I'm I'm glad that you guys enjoyed this conversation as much as I did because I really did. This was great. Thank you.
1: Thank you for coming.
0: All right, guys. So uh, please uh, follow, us, follow us on social media. We have episodes there uh, every now and then. And well, uh, this was War Diplomacy. Awaken your inner warrior.